You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today I'm joined in studio by Dr. Johan Walker, Ducks Unlimited's Director of Operations for our Great Plains region. Johan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here with you. Good to have you here in person. I think we've had you on the podcast once or twice before. You probably gave us a habitat update from the U.S. Prairies. That's your place of work. That's one of the things that we're going to talk to you about today. It's November 2nd. Anytime we give one of these habitat updates, I like to give a sort of a calendar reference. So if somebody's listening to this in December or January, they'll kind of have some temporal context to it. So yeah, November 2nd, and we want to start out with a little bit of a habitat update from the Dakotas, but then we're going to, for the for the majority of this discussion, this particular episode, we're going to talk about, well, in particular, it's, it's something formerly known as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Small Wetlands Acquisition Program, and then also the Fish and Wildlife Service easement partnership. Those things are important because they are key delivery mechanisms for wetland and grassland protections uh, on the U.S. side of the of the prairie pothole region. Most important area for breeding waterfowl here in, in the country or in, in the continent. What I want to do, I guess, first for those that may, may not have heard some of your previous episodes, introduce yourself to our listeners. Where'd you come from? What's your personal professional background? How long you been with Ducks Unlimited? All that kind of good stuff. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the invitation, and it's nice to see your studio. I'm Johan Walker. 
Director of Operations for Conservation in the Great Plains region, which is a seven-state region for DU, including the Dakotas and Montana, Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and Kansas. So kind of the center of the country, and I'm lucky enough to work in the Prairie Pothole region, which is, as you pointed out, the area with the highest breeding duck densities on the continent and I think likely on the planet. So it's a real privilege to work up there. I've worked for Ducks Unlimited in that Bismarck office for 17 years now. Started out as a research biologist. I've worked as the science director and a conservation programs director for the Dakotas and Montana before assuming the role I'm in now. I grew up in Missoula, Montana. I was a duck hunter in a world of elk hunters, which worked out well for us, few duck hunters out there at the time. And we just got deeper and deeper into it until it eventually led me off to grad school in Alaska and back down to the prairies in North Dakota where I live with my wife and my four kids. And we spend as much time outside as we can. It's just a little bit of background on me. So, Johan, you said there that you, you've been hunting for a long time. I don't know exactly what age you said you started there, if you told me the age, but you did. On the way down here to the studio, we passed by one of these beautiful taxidermy mounts that we have here in the in headquarters. You stopped by and pointed out the white-winged scoter, and you told me that there's a, that, that, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have too much fun with this, but you, <laughs> you said, you, you told a story about how you were 17 years old, and you, uh, you shot one of those in Montana, right? Well, let me see if I can tell it quickly, but it's kind of an interesting story. It was the first white-winged scoter harvested at Lee Metcalf National Wildlife Refuge in Stevensville in like 28 years. So it, it was kind of a surprise to me and to everyone else who I wound up talking to about it. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Lee Metcalf is a small, spaced blind hunting area check out first come first serve to blinds on this little wildlife refuge about 20 miles south of Missoula on the edge of the Bitterroot River. I went there one night after school, had about an hour left to hunt, just raced down there with a few decoys and set up, got into a blind that I liked, felt pretty good about it, sat there. It was a hot sort of October evening, probably about 75 degrees, clear, sun's going down in the west. I sat there till two minutes before shooting time. And some of you who are familiar will remember that at those kind of areas, the law enforcement personnel usually sit out at the parking lot where you've left your car waiting for you to come in and making sure people don't shoot late and things like that. So I saw the warden pull into the parking lot and I was sort of on point, but thought I had about five minutes and I still hadn't fired a shot. And I was excited to maybe get something right at the end. Well, right at the end, out of the sun, comes a big duck with its wings cupped. <laughs> and I had nothing, so I thought, yeah. even if it's a hen mallard, You're good. I'm taking a shot. Yeah. So I pulled up on that bird, and I dropped it like a bad habit. It fell 30 yards away in the, in the grass on the berm, which was lucky for me because I was just a chest waders hunter at the time, and things could get complicated because of that, too. So I, I started walking over to it very confidently, feeling super cocky. And when I took a look down into the weeds, all I saw were these two giant pink feet poking up way past the tail. And I thought, what did I do? <laughs> and then I looked back out at the parking area where the warden was sitting and I thought, I don't know if I should even. <laughs> so I, I started leaning over and I just leaned over like nothing was going on. And I put my hand down there and I... I picked it up by one foot. I pulled it out a little bit and I looked at it and I was like, well, it didn't a cormorant. So I pulled it out a little more. I 
was like, huh, I think I've seen one of these in a book before. <laughs> I think this might be a white wing scoter. And so with renewed confidence, still a little worried, I hiked out with it, met the warden in the parking lot. He looked at it for a little bit. He didn't know what it was. I said, I think it's a white wing scoter. And he pulled out ducks at a distance. Mm -hmm. Between the two of us, we came to that conclusion and he wrote down a few notes and I left for the night. You know, much yeah. relieved. Yeah, sure. After my... And you cooked it up later that night and it was the best duck you ever ate. Oh, I just fried it till it was hard, Mike. It was delicious. <laughs> so... Well, that's good. That wasn't the first duck you'd ever killed, though. That, no. That, that no. would have been quite memorable if, as a 17-year-old, the first duck you ever harvested Not would have been a, a white-winged scoter in Montana. I just thought that I had maybe put a premature end to my duck hunting career there yeah. for a few minutes. <laughs> you just knew that <laughs> as you saw those legs, it was going to be that cormorant that you feared. Uh, but, uh, so, all right. Well, good deal. I appreciate you letting me have a little bit of fun with you on that. And I guess that uh, that'll teach you not not to stop at these taxidermy mounts and tell too many stories as we're on the way back here next time you're here in town. But uh, yeah, so let's transition here to get an update on habitat conditions. We've talked all year long about the severity of the drought that has enveloped all the prairies and, of course, then in the western U.S. as well. But here over the past 30 to 60 days, we have been hearing down here about some precipitation that's been falling across the region, at least on the U.S. side. So what can you tell us about the status of habitat conditions? And you can even throw in some observations for personal experiences about what you're seeing or hearing with regard to bird movements, bird uh, numbers in, in the area, and whether people are struggling with some hunting success this year as we've, we've kind of anticipated. So just give us an update on that, Johan. Thanks, Mike. I, it has been, as, as interested listeners know, a, a really dry breeding season in the Prairie Pajol region, especially so in the eastern Dakotas. And so we were pretty relieved to get some big rain events in September and October. And by big, I mean multiple inches, uh, about three or four storms in that two to four inch range across most of the geography. What's still a little bit hard to swallow is that that wasn't enough to pull us out of severe drought status in most of that geography. We're in better shape than we were, but we're still a long ways from where we'd like to be optimally. Now, that's despite folks calling me and telling me that they went from dust to mud in just a couple of days, and they've got bales standing in water out in their pastures, and they're telling their pheasant hunting buddies to pack rubber boots. So there's water out there, and we're excited about that and hoping that we'll get a little bit of a frost seal or yeah. a lot of a frost seal, yeah. a nice, hard, quick freeze that seals the ground up and then snow on top of that and plenty of it would put us in a position where we could maybe expect an average water year next year. But there's a few conditionals there, so that's what folks should be thinking about in their mind's eyes. They hope for the best up in the prairies over the next year. So I want to get your opinion here or your thoughts on, on what weather conditions are like there now. We had Mike, Dr. Mike Schumer on a couple of weeks ago talking about sort of long-range expectations for, I think, a polar vortex disruption is what he was, uh, he was seeing in some of those uh, patterns. And, and I do know we are here November 2nd, and we are seeing some colder weather come through. What were the temperatures and what were conditions whenever you left to come down here and left from Bismarck? And then what are you seeing? What are you expecting here over the next few days? So when I came down we were kind of in about the same temperature range as Memphis is now, sort of 40s, 50s, maybe 60s during the day, mid-30s 
at night, occasional freeze, but but nothing real hard. We've only had a couple of hard freezes in Bismarck so far this fall. This week, we were supposed to get down in the sort of 18 degrees for a low kind of range at least one night, but it's starting to warm back up again next week. So what I'm expecting a little bit longer range is that we, I think the NOAA predictions are kind of in the range of this winter has a chance of being wetter than normal That'd because be good. of La Nina conditions yeah. Yeah. that Mike probably, probably brought up yeah. and a little colder than normal. And both of those things are favorable to the scenario I laid out yeah. earlier. They don't have to happen, yeah. but but that's kind of where the folks who think about this stuff most think it could go. So let's talk about hunting a little bit. What are some of the early returns from folks that you've interacted with or even some of your experiences out in the field? I think most of us would probably expect a little tougher sledding this year because we're expecting fewer young birds in the fall flight. Are people are still killing birds up there? How's things? How have things been going? Yeah, so I think I think some of the observations broadly are consistent with that idea that mallards and pintail production is probably off quite a bit from what we're used to, and that most of those birds are in larger, older flocks. So more numbers per flock, fewer flocks and older birds. So a little bit tougher to work with on that side. And folks are talking about that a bit. Harder to find good field feeding conditions. Wetlands often have large rings of dry mud and a little bit of water out in the middle, which makes it very hard for hunters to hide and be successful. Yeah, so some of the wetlands that are at the bottom of little sub-watersheds and still have a lot of water in them are holding green-winged teal and widgeon. I've heard of people having some success with those species. So that's kind of a bright spot. Geese are definitely moving through the Dakotas and in numbers, and the white geese have started to show up in the last couple of weeks in, in big numbers. Mm-hmm. Folks are having success chasing those. Good deal. Good. Have you been able to get out? I got out in western Saskatchewan for a few days back in September. Yeah. And it was good, but much like I described. Johan, that's probably good for a recap of habitat conditions and sort of hunting report from the prairies. Appreciate you taking the time to do that. We could say a lot more about that if we wanted to, but in the interest of time, let's kind of move on. We'll talk about the uh, the, the primary subject of this episode, which is going to focus on one of the particular activities that we use to help protect wetlanding and grasslands in the prairies. Most of what we're going to talk about here is going to relate to the U.S. side of the prairies. And the history on this goes back quite a ways. And I guess I'll turn this over to you here in just a minute. But from a big picture, you know, one of the things, one of the tools we have in our toolbox, and it comes in a variety of different shapes, is protection of existing habitats that we know are valuable to waterfowl. You know, we can also talk about restoration or enhancement of existing wetlands and and other uh, waterfowl habitats, but protecting lands, wetlands, grasslands, and others that are already valuable and trying to prevent the loss of those values is something that we place a lot of priority on. And certainly in the prairies where we have intact grasslands, intact wetlands, we want to keep those on the landscape. And we can do that either through fee title acquisition where we just purchase the property outright or more commonly easements. That's going to be the focus of much of our discussion here through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Small Wetland Acquisition Program and then the Fish and Wildlife Service's Easement Partnership. So to start with, give us an introduction to the concept of easements from the perspective of how we use those to protect habitat values. Yeah, so an easement, and 
they, they occur in all kinds of places, under power lines, places where folks need access. It's just a conditional right to a piece of property that's shared with a deeded landowner. So, for example, in the prairies, to protect wetland basins and grasslands, we have instruments that stipulate that the landowner receives a payment in return for forfeiting the right to drain wetlands or the right to plow up grassland. So there's compensation involved and there's a term involved. In this case, those easements are permanent and easements are typically voluntary. An agreement entered into between a willing landowner and and some entity in in the prairies, the tip, the main entity is the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so these are legal binding agreements, legally enforceable, right? That's correct. And the advantage of easements over straight out fee title acquisition is they're cheaper, right? Because you're not buying the land itself; you're only purchasing a certain potential use of that land or, yeah, land use activity, right? So, you know, let's let's back up with that kind of introduction. Talk about the history of our efforts and the efforts of our partners and when we recognize the need to protect wetlands on the landscape, on the prairie landscape, when we saw what was happening with regard to wetland drainage, we can go back to the 30s and 40s and, and identify places where people were beginning to recognize the, the severe consequences of wetland drainage. And how did all of this start? The idea of protecting intact wetland basins and on the, on the basis of their value for breeding waterfowl. So can you remind me, Mike, the first year that the U.S. Biological Survey or the Department of the Interior required duck hunters 16 years of age and older to buy a duck stand? That'd be 1934. That's the, what I uh, thought. The Migratory Bird Hunting Stamp Act, if I'm not mistaken there, yeah. right? And Later think, became Hunting and Conservation Stamp Act. There you go. So I think, you know, this is relevant to that whole discussion and that that was the point when conservation of waterfowl habitat transitioned to kind of a hunter-financed model. And many of the listeners, and you and I, we've all bought our duck stamps in the last month or two. And it's easy to wonder, where does that money go? And people, duck hunters have wondered that, I imagine, since the very beginning of the program. The intent of those funds was always to protect habitat for waterfowl so that there would be a waterfowl resource for hunters to harvest. And early on, it was recognized that the prairie pothole region, like I talked about earlier, was really important for North American waterfowl production. And that that was a place where a lot of that duck stamp revenue needed to be invested in order to ensure the long-term sustainability of harvestable duck populations. Early in the program, our biological knowledge was less sophisticated even than it was a couple decades in. And the first attempts to protect habitat in the prairies were about protecting basins that were resistant to drought, really large wetlands. And so the waterfowl production area system started purchasing really large semi-permanent basins from local landowners in what you referred to earlier as fee title ownership which I just think of as all-in ownership. You have all the responsibilities and all the rights and all the taxes of owning a piece of property. So the Fish and Wildlife Service started building an estate composed of those large wetland basins, and there's still many of them out there. 
But as agriculture became increasingly sophisticated post-World War II, some of the Fish and Wildlife Service staff out on the ground in the Dakotas and Montana in the late 40s began to realize that wetland drainage, and especially drainage of the smaller wetlands, was a serious concern. And they started thinking about what kinds of programs could we create that might help us get in front of that, that might help us slow it down, that might help us save enough wetlands that we can truly expect to sustain this resource. So these were true visionaries. And these folks came up with a program that has stood up now for 70 odd years to, it's durable and it's incredibly popular and it's really well accepted by landowners and it works really well for conservation. It's a, it's a stroke of genius. And that's these minimally restrictive voluntary conservation easements, both wetland easements and grassland easements. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. So one thing that I'll mention here, you referenced the waterfowl production areas, just sort of a, a mental image for people that may be familiar with the Dakotas, any of our waterfowl hunters or, or Montana and Minnesota, if they've seen those waterfowl production area signs, those are some, some, of the, some of the pieces of land that are affected through these programs and through these duck stamp dollars. So you talked about the early days of, of our interest in protecting these wetlands. And, and how the way we do things now aren't necessarily how we started, right? So something changed along the way. One of the, other th- one of the notable things that changed through this was I think it was 1958 when there was sort of formal authorization of something that we've, talk- we've introduced, Small Wetlands Acquisition uh, Program. Talk about that. What is it exactly? And, and how did it change things with regard to the way we were going about our protections and then any other changes that came uh, after that? 
So the Small Wetlands Acquisition Program really was an extension and broadening of the Waterfowl Production Area Program. It falls under that heading and begins to bring in these minimally restrictive conservation easements, which were an instrument, like I talked about a few minutes ago, designed to protect all of the wetland basins out on the landscape, not just the large ones, which was a recognition made by biologists on the ground that the small wetlands were critically important to the pear carrying capacity of the landscape. And by that, I mean the number of breeding pears that a landscape can support is directly proportional to the number of wetlands on that landscape, much more than their size. The thing I like to tell general audiences about that is that 10 one-acre wetlands will support three times as many breeding duck pairs as one 10-acre wetland. And the science behind that statement was beginning to be developed and accepted at the same time as this small wetlands acquisition program came online. Those wetland managers that you referred to realized that they needed an instrument that would allow them to work with landowners to protect those wetlands from drainage. So that's where we were in 1958. Pretty exciting times. Then the question became, what's the pacing here? There's a great opportunity. The initial canvassing for interest uncovered a lot of interest among landowners in these, in these agreements. They were very simple. They don't disrupt normal farming operations. The original easement was a wet easement that said, you can farm this when it's dry, you can plant whatever you want, whenever you want, you just can't drain, fill, or burn natural wetland basins as identified on the map of the property. That's the same way they are today. Somewhere along the way, you'll have to remind me of the date, I believe grassland easements were added to this, correct? So it started mm -hmm. with wetlands, and those, those were the simple restrictions that you talked about. When did grasslands get added to our portfolio of, of protections there through this program? So I'm not exactly sure of the date when the grassland easement contract was designed, but another leap in our biological understanding in the mid to late 1990s was the recognition that landscape levels of nesting cover, especially grassland, were important to overall reproductive success of ducks and thus protecting grass became a much bigger part of the operation. And in 1997, Ducks Unlimited signed a memorandum of understanding with the Fish and Wildlife Service to enter into a partnership to facilitate grassland easement acquisition in the Dakotas. We'll get to that a little bit later on. Uh, let's talk about the, the restrictions that are in place for these grassland easements. You mentioned for wetland easements, the, the wet easements, what type of activities are prohibited. What about the grassland easements? The grassland easements are similarly simple, and so they prohibit plowing of natural grasslands within the legal descriptions defined by the easement and haying before July 15th or the end of what we call the primary nesting season. Okay, so that helps preserve the values for waterfowl. And most from a working land perspective, if we're talking about these, these grassland easements, it's going to be ranching. That's correct. And so not they don't restrict the number of cattle that can be out there or the date at which those cattle are put out. They allow the operator to make those decisions without interference, and that's part of the reason for their popularity and uptake. At the same time, they protect the grasslands and the wetland basins embedded within them. And what about access, public access to these WPAs? 
is that access, does that vary based on which property we're talking about in the terms of an individual easement or is it pretty standard? Because I know the, the common thought is that if it's a WPA, it's open to public access, but is that, is that necessarily true? How does that work? So all easements and waterfowl production area fee title tracts are part of the refuge system, but only the fee title tracts are open to public okay. access. Sort of a wise friend once told me, this isn't where we shoot ducks, this is where we grow them. Yeah. And so we need to have an agreement that landowners can live with indefinitely, but that preserves that duck production value, and that's the intent of the easement. Now, in many cases, state habitat access programs are layered on top of those protected areas by state agencies. So it's not to say that all easements are inaccessible. It's just that the easements don't guarantee access. Okay. Well, I appreciate that clarification. On these small wetland acquisitions that are affected with an easement, that are covered with an easement, do they also have these green WPA signs on them? They do not. They Only not. the fee title properties have that signage. Okay. And so a hunter listening to this episode who might find him or herself in the Dakotas might say, if I see that green sign, it's okay for me to hunt beyond there. And in fact, it says that on those signs. Okay. So, Johan, let's talk about Ducks Unlimited's role in this. We've introduced the programs, kind of what they are, how they protect these habitat values, what an easement is. But what is our role? What is Ducks Unlimited's role in this? Who are some of our other partners? Uh, and then, then we'll kind of wrap up with sort of a bigger view of Ducks Unlimited and our partners' wetland and grassland protection area protection efforts there in the prairies, but what's our role? So under the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, DU is an active partner in all important landscapes for waterfowl, but especially the prairies. And we work together with other partners in the Prairie Pothole Joint Venture, which is one of many joint ventures in the U.S., to deliver these programs in partnership with the Fish and Wildlife Service the state wildlife agencies in the Dakotas and Montana, Minnesota and Iowa, with other non-governmental conservation organizations such as TNC, Pheasants Forever, World Wildlife Fund, Audubon Society. Those are all in partnerships, but I can proudly say that Ducks Unlimited is one of the, is the largest private funder. Ducks Unlimited's philanthropic donors specifically provide funding that makes Ducks Unlimited the largest private funder in that easement program. So we work in that program hand in hand with our partners at every step from putting boots on the ground to canvas interest and generate interest in the program, which keeps us typically with a waiting list of interested landowners over 12 to 1500. And it's stayed that way for pretty much my entire career in the Dakotas. We're able to turn that with the funding we have, the, the partners are able to turn that waiting list over about every year and a half right now, but still keep it up there. So that boots on the ground, evaluations, interest generating, that's an important part of it. We work to provide realty expertise to close deals and get checks to landowners. And we also provide funding for legal work in the Fish and Wildlife Service, but we don't do any of that legal work. With regard to some of that assessments, uh, the maybe the biological assessment of the value of different areas for these uh, for for these easements, what has been our role in that regard in kind of bringing to bear our our understanding of 
varying densities of waterfowl, densities of wetlands, and then helping to prioritize different areas to maximize what it is that we're getting from these limited set of financial resources. Yeah, so the Fish and Wildlife Service has a very impressive 30-plus year data set. I believe the survey started in 1987 from the Four Square Mile Survey, it's called. And it's a survey of breeding ducks across that geography we were talking about that leads to GIS products that show us with with some precision where the highest densities of breeding waterfowl are. And we target as much of our resources as possible to willing landowners in those highest priority, highest density zones, working downward from there into areas that may have as few as 25 pairs per square mile still much higher than any other breeding habitat on the continent. So we do focus our effort in those areas based on what that information is telling us. Uh, But nevertheless, it's still a voluntary enrollment program, right? Correct. Part of the landowners. Every time. Yeah. And, And so the program is administered across the states of Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. The majority of the work is going to be implemented in North and South Dakota, as we would expect. That's where the, that's where most of the habitat, waterfowl habitat is, right? Um, and I have, I do have some statistics here. One of the things that we'll talk about here in just a moment is the prioritization of delivering some of these duck stamp funds in the prairies relative to this program. I think you have a, a, a number for me there in terms of percentage of the duck stamp funds that we try to put towards the prairies. But I'm looking at some numbers here. Since the, since the 1950s, this small wetland acquisition program has uh, has has affected easement contracts on somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 1.7. I don't have the exact number uh, acres of grasslands and I think a a similar number of of wetland acres, 1.5 to 1.7 million acres of wetlands. Those are are the numbers that I have here. And then there's also fee title uh, somewhere north of 500,000 acres that uh, that have been affected through duck stamp funds uh, and this program. So if I do the quick math, they were probably getting close to 4 million acres affected through the program. Does that sound about right? I think that's very close to what the total estate would be. And so then with regard to duck stamp funds, hunters listening to this, as you mentioned early on, have probably already, uh, well, many of us have already purchased our our duck stamps and everyone will have, should have by the time they get out in the uh, in the field. There is an entire process by which those funds are spent. Decisions are made on on where they're where they're spent during a given year. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Save Service made a decision a few years ago to really prioritize the prairie pothole region. Right? Tell us a little bit about that. So, under the current Migratory Bird Conservation Fund, which includes duck stamp revenue as part of its revenue. The Fish and Wildlife Service allocates about 70% of annual duck stamp receipts to the Small Wetlands Acquisition Program. So that high priority placed on the prairie pothole region, raising ducks, supporting all sorts of other grassland and wetland-dependent species that uh, that occupy that, that landscape. We do that, they do that, and we partner with them on those activities because it's important for waterfowl and all these other birds that we that, that we, we we talk about, but also the threat is not abating. The threat continues. Conversion of grasslands, uh, threats to wetlands continue. So it's sort of full speed ahead 
for Ducks Unlimited and our conservation partners in trying to find uh, trying to deliver on successful programs that protect existing values of waterfowl habitats, but then also trying to find new and innovative solutions for accelerating our pace of conservation. From a big picture perspective, uh, we've I, I've threw out some numbers there, sort of historically of the acreages that have been affected through the small wetland acquisition program. On a more recent time frame, you and I were talking earlier, and you you brought up a couple of a couple of st- statistics dollars and acres that our entire collection of partnerships and programs that have affected or have, have benefited and protected there in the prairies here over the past few years. Can you recall those numbers for me? Since that first Migratory Bird Conservation Fund business plan that allocated 70% of duck stamp revenue to the prairies, we've seen an increase in the duck stamp from $15 to $25. Many of us will remember that. Almost all of that revenue goes to the prairies. As Ducks Unlimited signed that MOU I mentioned earlier in 1997, that was a big step forward in the grassland easement partnership. And since then, new funding sources, more philanthropic dollars from DU and other partners, partners interested, as you mentioned, in grassland birds and other values have joined in. And now all in, since 2013, that entire partnership, including public funding from duck stamps, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, North American Waterfowl Conservation Act grants, Ducks Unlimited Philanthropy, and other philanthropy has spent about $565 million on easements and acquired another three quarters of a million acres of protected habitat. And you was very well said to point out that the threats are unabating. There are many uses for, for land in the prairie pothole region. Continuing to ensure that waterfowl habitat is out there is a really important activity, as you can tell by those numbers. I hope people will begin to see and piece together some of the connections between the different messages, the different episodes that we are bringing to people. Zach Hartman, our chief policy officer, was uh, joined us a couple of months ago to talk about some of DU's policy wins over the past year. We talked about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. We talked about NACA and how those important pieces of legislation influenced beneficial funding for those programs. And those dollars, as we've talked about here, go to protect waterfowl, breeding waterfowl habitats in the U.S. prairies and other areas for some of those the, those programs as well. But this is an example of where those efforts translate into meaningful resources that affect waterfowl habitats on the ground. And most of these easements, I'm not sure if we've said this, most of these easements and maybe all of them now, you can clarify, are going to be perpetual in nature. I think early on, they were largely 20-year easements, if my memory is correct, some something of that nature. But now most of those easements are perpetual. So these are funds that are being spent to protect habitats in perpetuity. And that's a good thing. To close out here, Johan, one of the things that we, we like to do when we have an opportunity is to provide advice or insight to our listeners on what their role is, how they can help. So with regard to this small and small wetland acquisition program and funds that go through it, we've talked about the duck stamp. That's an important source of funds. We've talked about some of the other pieces of legislation that influence these policies. What do you tell our listeners, our hunters, our, our supporters in terms of how they can help? So one of the easiest things to do is to keep buying duck stamps and buy as many of them as you can. 
buy one for everybody in the family and put it in their Christmas stocking. That's actually a great idea this year because it may be more difficult to find those fluffy animals on the on the retail store shelves, right? There so there you, you go. go. There's your Christmas idea. So sorry, carry on. And I think that's great. And I think encourage everyone you know who cares about birds, who cares about clean water, who cares about the future of these kind of resources to do the same. That's a really simple step. And you know, based on our discussion over the last few minutes, that this money goes straight to the things you care about. But in addition to that, there's a few other things we can all do. Continue to support the federal agencies and state agencies that do a lot of the conservation work on the ground. The Fish and Wildlife Service, when their budget is up for review and you get an email from your conservation organization saying support this, check it out and and support it. When the North American Wetlands Conservation Act is up for reauthorization and you get that email, contact your congresspeople, your members, and, and encourage them to support that effort. Same thing with Land and Water Conservation Fund and other conservation programs that are impactful in the prairies. Support conservation organizations. You know that I will say Ducks Unlimited is the one that I want you all to support, but pick a conservation organization that's active in the prairies and give it your support. That's a great way to conclude this. Some Christmas shopping advice there, but then also some advice that is true year after year, regardless of which time it is. Get involved, stay involved, support good policies, and let's make a make a lasting influence for, for the good of the ducks, duck habitats, and everything else that depends on that. Johan, I know that you need to run and get to the airport. I appreciate you taking the time to join us here in studio. It's great to visit with you, and thanks for sharing some some useful insights on, pe- on things that people that are up there on the prairies can see and, again, begin to make some of these connections on how this entire waterfowl management community uh, operates and where our listeners and our supporters fit in that. So thank you, Johan. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure to be with you. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Johan Walker. We greatly appreciate his time and sharing with us expertise on the uh, easement programs up there on the prairies. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does getting these podcasts out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your support and passion for wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 